Everybody say, praise the Lord. I looked that up in my uh, concordance today, and I saw 33 accounts of praise the Lord in, um, in the King James Bible, and he's worthy of praise. The first account was when Leah gave birth to Judah, and that's the first place in Genesis where she said, I'm going to praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. And Judah is a derivative of a word uh, yada, which is a word for praise. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it makes perfect sense to me because we're designed and created to be worshipful and be praisers. We're not just singers of songs. We're actually worshipers of God. And I guess I want to try to unpack some of the substance of this for you. There are patterns. There are approaches. A pattern isn't necessarily a formula. I don't want to present this in a formulaic way. There's not any gimmickry to it, but there's a culture of the kingdom of God. Cultures have behaviors. It's the way we do things. And the culture of the kingdom, because we're citizens of heaven, it's the way heaven operates. And in fact, this is the verse I want to start with, Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 100 is famous, the psalm of praise. And it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Hallelujah. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus. I'm kind of excited about this because Psalm 77 verse 1 kind of drives this point home. The, the psalmist said it this way about, about his voicing, about laying this out. He said, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. So I want to get this point across to you right off the bat that worshiping God and connecting with God, and even in this moment in church, is not just thinking and internalizing, but it's worshipfully vocalizing. In fact, I caught myself during the song, as I was conscious, self-conscious while my microphone was on, that I wasn't catching onto the key that the worship leaders were, were singing. So I was conscious that I was going a little bit flat, so I started to back off. But I'm thankful that the Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Hallelujah. So God's not so much interested in us being so super refined, like we're a giant collective of the Von Trapp family singers. But he does, in fact, want us not to just sort of stand there and internalize. And again, another point I made last week, God is worthy He's requested us. He's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. God inhabits the praises of his people. And last week I pointed out that this heals and cures introspection. So in Psalm 77 verse 1, he said, My voice rises to God aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. Say that. He will hear me. So again, it's, it's not just thinking. It's not just internalizing. It's really voicing your appreciation your affection. Like, I, you know, I've always wanted Patsy to know that I truly love her, so I want to try to communicate it in ways that she really gets. It's not love until the one being love knows that it is love. I just feel like it's a way, these words of affirmation and praise, that's a way to let the person you're talking to know that you care. You know, I think the world, there's a lot, there are a lot of people right now that are totally ignoring God. So 
God is looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. My son Kingston uh, mentioned to me the other day that whatever we'll, we will ultimately be doing in heaven, we should start to occupy ourselves with on the earth. I thought that was a really good way to look at it. And so we look at what heaven is doing and uh, we identify if it's what we're reading is clear in Revelation, which it is that people are all angels and and the spirits of righteous men made perfect are standing before the Lord singing holy, 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 then this must be something, it's eternally important. God's worthy of praise. And um, there's so much to this. There's so much to this. In fact, it says in Psalm 33, 1, that it's comely or beautifying to the upright. So when we're people of praise, it activates some things. First of all, number one, it's because God's worthy of our praise. But there's something to it. There's something that's kind of miraculous to it that uh, I want to try to bring over to you guys. So let's look at this great truth in Psalm 16, verse 11. Let's go over to Psalm 16, verse 11. And I want to just try to inspire you concerning really filling your mouth with his praises and spending time seeking God and spending time worshiping him. I don't want to just say, praise the Lord, glory to God, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah, like so much church speak, but I also don't want to suppress it either. If I say hallelujah, I want it to really be connected with my heart, and I want to truly be worshiping God. If, I, if, I want to say, if I'm going to say praise the Lord, I don't want it to be an exclamation because I'm in a church setting where people understand it. I want to really say that, praise the Lord. Everybody say praise the Lord. He's worthy of praise. Now, Psalm 16, verse 11 says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's just ponder this. In God's presence, it's not depleted, it's not boring, it's not an atmosphere of condemnation, it's not an atmosphere of apprehension. In fact, literally, as the redeemed of the Lord, we can draw near to the throne of grace and without the sense of guilt or condemnation or shame. Because the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation any longer for those who are in Christ. And it also says that we were sinful and lost and the wages of sin is eternal separation and death. But yet God has imparted his own righteousness as a gift, part of the provision of Jesus. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Christianity is premier. All religions on the earth are people trying to get things right with God. Christianity is God coming to us and bringing his own righteousness to us as a gift. You guys, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we need to taste the seed that the Lord is good. And here's what it says. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. And we're to enter into his presence. Bottom line in his presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Just ponder that for a minute. In the presence of the Lord, there's completeness. In the presence, when, when God is present, that's the best part of life. You get a new car, it's exciting. If you, you, know, you get a camouflage tie with a camouflage shirt for about 15 minutes, it's awesome. And then it's like, what was I thinking? My brother when we were kids, was really, he was into marbles, 
And there were, you know, he would explain to me, he would get, there was a cat's eye, and then there was a puree, and then there was a cat's eye puree. Now, my brother's laughing, nobody else gets this, but my brother just had a love for his cat's eye puree. And uh, I, I was a couple years older, so I was just out of the realm of marbles, but he just loved flipping those marbles. Anybody ever play marbles? Anybody ever lose your marbles? That might be why you're here tonight, to try to find your marbles. <laughs> but I thought about this because I went to, I went and I found a jar of, uh, at an antique mall, I found a jar of old buttons that they used to save buttons back in the day. And it was an old uh, mason jar. The jar itself is really cool. And for about six bucks, I got a big jar of buttons. And, I, and in the buttons, there was a cat's eye puree, which I should probably give to him. But... Because he's still really into it. I could see it. He still would like to have a cat's eye puree. See, nobody's going to go along with this because it's so far-fetched. Because it's like, why would you get excited about marbles? Do you remember certain things you fixated on when you were a kid? And then it's like, why do I have this? This is in my garage. I want to get rid of this, you know. But it was such a big deal. We're going to kind of conclude that overall in eternity that nothing really matters but... God and our quality, our walk with God and his presence. Do you understand that the presence of the Lord, whenever Jesus shows up in the New Testament, a guy with leprosy is an outcast and he's, he's like, Jesus comes down off the mountain and his deal is he's an outcast. He has an incurable disease, a communicable disease. He's banned, he's marked, he's avoided societally, there's just so many aspects to it. And he goes and asks Jesus, would you, would you heal me? And Jesus says, yes, I will. And he touches his, his forehead. I mean, that, I guess, for that guy's life, the presence of Jesus was the big deal of the big deals for him. Boom, everything changed. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. This is my hope for our country, that as the enemy's trying to bring division, as, as certain things are bearing down on society, we as the people of God need to continue in a mature way to lift up our eyes and worship God, connect with God, and realize we're actually designed to be carriers of the presence of God. Show forth his praises. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, it says in 1 Peter 2.9, a holy nation, and we're designed and hardwired to show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness. You know, after Jesus died, rose again and ascended and sent his Holy Spirit, Peter would be in a village and people would be in the very shadow of Peter and they would get healed. And the disciples had to say, hey, you guys, they had to say a couple of times, hey, no, we're just people. It's God that's doing these miracles. Like they were dismissive of him one minute and the next minute they're saying like there's Zeus and Hermes and all this kind of Jupiter or whatever. And they had to say, no, 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 no. We're just people. But yet on the other hand, we serve an extraordinary God who does the miracles. And I just want to really hunker down on this. So I've laid this foundation. So James chapter four, verse eight is what I want to get over to you with the parallel of uh, Psalm 16, verse 11. Since God, you know, in his presence, there's fullness of joy. Then in his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If people would just get in Peter's shadow and be healed, if Paul in Acts chapter 19 would take off of his work clothes and they would take them and put 
the work clothes had apparently had the presence of God lingering even in the cloth. And that would seem pretty far-fetched except for the fact that it's biblical. And so therefore, it's something we can embrace, that God's tangible presence can get on and through and out of you, even in your workday, even in your context. Paul was building tents, and David was a shepherd, and as was Moses, and you know, there's just the daily life. You should be proud of your daily life and realize that in the context of your daily life, that's where most of the people are. And so let's get out there amongst the people and be carriers of the presence of God. And we don't have to exert religious affectations when there's legitimate substance there already. We can just go out and be supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural. We could present Jesus in a conversational style in the context of our daily life when we've had time fellowshipping with him, where it becomes seamless, where it's so real for us, there's really an ongoing proximity. So then as we walk this out, we'll see greater results. God will put us in context where we'll speak up and pray up and show up and, and love people, and it, it, there'll be supernatural things that'll happen. I've noticed these wonderful gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, they operate in our daily life. In fact, God, I believe, wants to really do some great things in the context of church as examples to us in order that we can be acclimated to that and then long for that, yearn for that, become familiar with it, and then take it out into the world, trusting that God will manifest himself. But it needs real, loving, godly, qualified, competent, worshipers by qualified I just mean that you've lined up with and understand the call on your life to draw near to God look what it says in James chapter 4 verse 8 draw near to God and I love this and he will draw near to you draw near draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded and there's always this responsibility to stay repentant be quick to repent, quick to ask forgiveness. Not, not a shame, condemnation kind of a thing, but just constantly have a repentant heart and be always ready and yielded so you don't short-circuit any of the flow of God's blessing. Patsy and I learned this you know, early on. You just don't want anything to sabotage the anointing or the flow of the Holy Spirit. So you, you know when sharp words or harshness or conflict comes, which it's inevitable the conflict comes, it depends on what kind of personalities you have, but in some, for some of us it's easy. If somebody's just real sweet and passive like I am, it's just always easy. But uh, otherwise, you just have to be quick to repent, quick to ask forgiveness, keep a good spirit, stay on the sunny side of things. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Earlier in James, it says... Um, we're to ask God for things in faith without wavering. For if we waver, we're like the waves of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. And let not that man expect to receive anything from the Lord, a, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So God doesn't want us to be double-minded. God wants us to be single-minded. And in that singularity, there's a great blessing. So as we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. James was writing this. And the context, they're all Jewish believers. It's before the Gentiles really started to discover the gospel or at the very beginning of it. So the majority of these guys would have already understood that when the priest would draw near to the throne of God, 
they had very elaborate and specific law requirements that were governed in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus that they had to go in there having washed at the laver of the, the, the water and then they had to confess their sins and the sins of the people. And they would tie a rope around these priests and put bells on them and if they didn't do everything in compliance, they would drop dead in the presence of God and they'd stop hearing the bells. they go, oh, uh, Elmo didn't go in there right. They'd have to haul Elmo out, you know, and send somebody. All right, who else wants to be in the ministry? You know? Yeah, I'll sign up for that. That's the ministry. But now we can draw nearer to him, and he'll draw near to us. And uh, number one, we draw near to him. It's to him. You guys, you know when you're a Christian, you know what the center of it is? Jesus. You know what this is all about? Jesus. You know who the King of Kings is? You know whose name is above every name? Do you know that he's the Lord and he's beautiful? Think about Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And uh, he's the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know the Old Testament, look to Jesus. If you want to understand Old Testament theology, look at Jesus. If you want to understand the New Testament, look at Jesus. If you want to be inspired, look to Jesus for what he did on the, his earthly ministry. If you want to get inspired, look to Jesus because he's coming back soon. If you want to experience a quality in your Christian life, get centered on him. David, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, when he was going through trouble, the Bible says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord. David drew near to God and uh, again and again and again. In fact, that's the difference between David, Absalom, his son, Saul, the predecessor king. David was the one that just kept running back to God when he skinned his knees, bloodied his nose, failed again and again and again. And yet the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. How many of you want to have a heart after God? I want to not just honor him with my lips. I want, him to, I want to honor him with my heart as well. And so true worship actually emanates out of the heart. And so I, in fact, feel you could sense God even doing this right now in, in, in this place. This is a form of revival. You know, we're, we, we don't really know what revival is. We kind of think it's a lot of flash and fire. But it's, I think, a continual prompting in the direction of God every day. You can have revival. Revive our hearts, Lord. I've been around Christians who've been through stuff, and they've come through it. I've been with people who've had long stretches of difficulty, but God has always been present and faithful to help them through. So when David strengthened himself in the Lord, and I don't have time to preach on 1 Samuel 30 about Ziklag, but he had a hard time. You ever been in a hard place? you got to draw near to God in those situations. Sometimes that's the last thing we want to do. Sometimes we don't really want to sing praises. It's like we've been sucker punched and we've got all the air knocked out of us. And the last thing we want to do is start worshiping God. But that's the first thing and the most important thing to do. I think this is interesting in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16, that we draw near with confidence. Number two, we draw near to the throne with confidence, with boldness. I'm sold on being bold. I think we need to be confident 
Confidence is not cockiness. It's not to be confused with arrogance. Confidence is backbone. Confidence is where you know God is good and he's reliable and you can trust him. Say that with me. I'm sold on being bold. And so it says in Hebrews, the fourth chapter in the 16th verse, it says that, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So we did that tonight. And I appreciate the song choices because they brought us into awareness of Jesus and the miraculous and gets us put in that context. It's important, you know, the devil will try to shake your confidence. He'll use fear. Uh, He's the father of lies and he uses fear mercilessly. He's evil. He picks on little kids. He picks on people when they're vulnerable. In the night seasons, he'll try to sneak up and lie. He's the father of lies. He's very, very skilled and actually gifted at it. But for the fact that God has not given us a spirit of fear, it gives us an ability to conquer and overcome it. And uh, God replaces that trepidation with courage. We have confidence in God's faithfulness. The reason we're confident, and it's reasonable to be confident, when you have such an amazing, faithful Savior, Jesus, who was everything he claimed to be, he was flawless, he was on point, he did his mission faithfully. He is amazing. He was tempted like crazy, and he never caved in. No scandal, no lie, although they lied about him, it was baseless. All the accusations were baseless because Jesus is reliable and he's amazing. Draw near to the Lord, number three, to praise him, to praise him. He's worthy of our praise. We praise you. We we acknowledge who you are, God. You're the mighty God. You're the healer. So many times I've had to get up and just stir myself up by way of reminder. You're the Savior, Lord. Like, I'm, I'm right now on a quest to see more people come to Jesus. And I'm believing God for salvation to come to people that have, are walking in utter darkness. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. And I'm just believing God people will get off that and get onto the narrow path. And I'm thanking God. God, you are the Savior who saves. That's, he, I, I praise you for what you've done on the cross. And the next one, number four, I want to thank God. We enter in with thanksgiving. We enter in with thank you. I think that thank you ought to be sprinkled throughout just about every sentence in our lives when it comes to to things about the Lord. So lest we become ungrateful, let's just be people that are constant. Thank you, Jesus. Everybody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, when you thank somebody, you're acknowledging that they've done something for you. Thank you. You know, I was in a restaurant, and a guy kept filling up my water glass. I said thank you to him. I think he was used to being ignored because it shocked him. You know, he, was, he, gave, he gave me water. I looked up and I looked him in the eye and I said, thank you. And he was like, oh, no, no, no problem, man. <laughs> he looked at me like, no, nobody ever acknowledges I'm even here, man. There's something powerful about being thankful. The Bible says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And then the last point about drawing near And I think it is last, but I think it's certainly important we understand we can obtain 
when we draw near to God, in his presence there's fullness of joy. We could get results. God is results-oriented. And when we enter into his gates with thanks and into his courts with praise, you can be sure that spiritual things are taking place while you're spending time ministering to the Lord. He's activating certain things all around about you. You're co-laboring with him. You're activating certain things that he has affection for and takes interest in. Take, for example, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to just look at this amazing little, little snapshot in the Old Testament about when Jehoshaphat had an issue with a battle. There was a convergence. Chapter 20. It came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat was facing literally the greatest external threat of his reign as a king. And he had three battle zones all come in a convergence and Mount Seir, so even more. Then it came, some came and reported to Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is the Engedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord. Boy, that, what do we do? What time, David said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Joyce Meyer taught a message years ago, do it afraid. She said one time she was invited to speak at a conference and all these guys got around and talked about what they were going to say and it came around to her and she said when she opened her mouth, only a squeak came out. She was so nervous and so having an anxiety moment, she couldn't even talk. And yet, obviously, she was able to press past that and she's done pretty good. Everybody say, do it afraid. So Jehoshaphat was afraid. Is that okay that that says that there? And yet he turned his attention, he set his face to seek the Lord. And this is what I'm actually talking to you about. And proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Sometimes you just need to have a fast. Fasting will get breakthrough that other things won't. Verse 4, so Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. And this again, not only was it Jehoshaphat, but now Judah has gathered together and it's to seek help from the Lord. Sometimes adversity will kind of come in. These, these elements will come in and it puts God's people in a place where God can deliver them out of something. And stuff starts to happen and then it gives opportunity for God's uh, presence to come in and show up in a special way. So I like it that Judah got together, came together to seek the Lord, ask for help from God. And then it says here in verse 5, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Now what's happening here? Look at the language of this sentence. He's going in before God and he's, he's reminding God. God doesn't need any reminder, by the way. But through praise and thanks and acknowledgement and testimony, Jehoshaphat is stirring himself up by way of reminder by saying, God, you are a great and mighty God. You are the mighty God. 
It dignified God when Jehoshaphat is going before him saying, you are a great and mighty God. Nothing is impossible with you. You do miracles. We are honoring you. You know, it's not manipulative. We're not whining. We're not groveling and saying, please do this and that. It's like, no, God, you are a great and mighty God, and I praise you for it, and I thank you for it. This, in fact, is the language of the praisers and the worshipers. He said, oh, Lord, you're the God of my fathers. Uh, are you not the God in the heavens? Are you not the ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Verse 6, power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O oh, our God, drive out the inhabitants of the lands before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? <laughs> they have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name saying, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. And everybody said amen. amen. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab, this is, he starts, he starts out by giving praise and honor and thanks and attesting to what he's done in the past. Then he comes in with the request and he says, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before the great, this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, I don't know how this plays out in Hebrew, but it rhymes in English. And I love this. We could wrap this. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That will preach. Jehoshaphat is being honest here. But in his honesty, he's attesting to how great God has been previously in specific moments. God, you, you that have done this. And you can see in times in the, in the Psalms, you parted the Red Sea. You fed Israel in the time of the wilderness with manna and with water out of the rock. And, you know, we as Christians can say, Lord, you anointed Paul to go into the Roman Empire presenting this gospel, which is the power of God. And signs, wonders, and miracles followed. And you are undiminished. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is our God. And it is our responsibility as worshipers to take hold of even a chapter out of the book of Second Chronicles and say, that God is my God. And you may not be facing Mount Seir or the Moabites or the Ammonites, but you may be facing addiction or a marriage problem or financial issues or alarming symptoms in your body, issues of your emotions, things that are trying to rob you of your peace, you know, and you can yet stand before the Lord and say, God, that God is our God. He's faithful today and I take my stand in faith. This is actually why I'm preaching this for you as an individual. So you have some weaponry. You've face off with your challenges with mighty songs of praise. And the devil will try to blow this pilot light right out of your, your furnace because, in fact, God inhabits the praises of his people. And, in fact, you're about ready to see this. Verse 13, all of Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. I like how inclusive this is. We need to learn to gaze at God and just glance at our problems. And the times I flipped that... I have caved in, and I'm grateful for people who help me and say, hey, man, the Holy Spirit's going to show up. God's going to see us through. 
Faithful is he who calls you, he'll also bring it to pass. Right? Then in the midst of the assembly, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the king Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Boy, that'll put confidence in you, won't it? Verse 16, tomorrow go up against them. Behold, they will come up at the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Remember in his presence there's fullness of joy. This is bringing, this is bringing a morale boost to the Jehoshaphat and to his army. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel. So which is the correct posture, to lay down or to stand up? The answer is yes. And, and with a very loud voice. Sometimes volume is actually necessary. Then it says this, listen, it says in verse 20, they rose up early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Look at verse 20. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and you will succeed. When, and this was in this context of what the prophet had said here. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord. And those who praised him in holy attire, as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 22, when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were routed. The King James says, smitten. Groups with evil agendas imploded in the atmosphere of people humbling themselves. And remember, Jehoshaphat was afraid and he began to seek the Lord. All of Judah came together and began to seek and worship God. And they got in cohesion together. They got resolved. Some of them fell down and some of them stood up. They all turned up the volume and began to minister to the Lord. Not obnoxiously so, not volume for volume's sake, but because of the nature of the moment. And in this context, God routed the enemy. God defeated and they were smitten. It says in verse 23, for the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. There are occasions spiritually where God, only God can turn a thing around. You can't legislate it. You can't in human power, move it. But God picked up the Moabites, Mount Seir, and the Ammonites like corks and just pushed them right out of the way, caused them to implode. Can we just believe God? 
that in the social ills and the dynamics of the nations and the volatilities in our personal lives, in our region, the localities, amen? amen. Also, we're in perilous times. Jehoshaphat was in a perilous time and he didn't know what to do, but his eyes were fixed on God. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in the midnight hour in the inner recesses of a prison, beaten and shackled, feet in stocks, lifted their voices, midnight hour, worshiping God. The chains fell off, the building shook, the people got set free, the Philippian jailer and his household got saved, and the Lord demonstrated that in every situation, whether it's with Jehoshaphat and Judah and Israel, or it's with Paul and Silas in the midnight hour, whatever the case may be for each one of us, it gets us out of that melancholy, introspective place. It, it gets us out of just being quiet and thinking and internalizing, and it gets us worshipfully lifting our voices, singing praises, and whatever you're facing. Listen, I'm believing God for our country because I think we need to really believe God for our country. There's a mess of demonic evil we need to take authority over in the spirit. Has nothing to do with your political biases or your opinion. Has everything to do with a spiritual dimension. That's the reality. And because we're of a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we need to get out there and we need to believe God for this thing to turn around.